Welcome to the seventh documentary of the 2020 season of the Documentary and One. And in this story, we rewind almost 50 years to the 1972 Olympic Games, where Irish sport and politics collided on a global stage. Narrated by David Coughlin, this is Green and Gold. At the 1972 Olympic Games in Munich, an Irishman took the lead in the cycling road race. 162 riders from 47 countries set off to cover 182 kilometres. Only he wasn't supposed to be there. He wasn't even entered in the race. What happened next made headlines around the world. That brought us within every paper in Europe. As Ireland's political divide spilled onto sport's biggest stage. Somebody had phoned the BBC to say that if I went home to Belfast, I'd be shot and my flat would be bombed. A bitter cycling civil war. It was a shine of little gold tacks on the road that had been put there. Broadcast to a global audience. The riders that were on the line were instructed, and indeed all the riders were thoroughly briefed to make as peaceful a protest as possible. This is the story of how Irish sport and politics collided in Munich in 1972. And for one family... An Olympic dream that never died. Eight months before those Olympic Games took place, 30th of January 1972, Bloody Sunday, the day 13 unarmed civilians were shot dead in Derry by the British Army. Father, how many dead have you seen in the bogside? Appearing to be dead, there are the three in that Saracen car. There are two men lying at the end of this block of flats. In the following days, the British embassy was burned down in Dublin. Crowds estimated at some 6,000 assembled outside the British embassy for the second night running. At first, it was a peaceful gathering. Then petrol bombs were hurled at the building. Former Irish cyclist John Mangan was one of those present at the protests in Dublin. I remember uh, I was living in Dublin at the time, uh, till January 72, I'd say, right, yeah, that they had uh, the big protest in Dublin at the, at the British embassies and all that. I mean, I would have been at that, yeah, well, just watching it, yeah. These days, John Mangan runs a hunting lodge in Kiloraglan, County Kerry. He's also the Irishman who took the lead in the cycling road race at the 1972 Olympic Games, even though he wasn't even entered in the race. I used that in 1972 in Munich, yeah. And that led the Olympics for a nice few miles, yeah. Unofficial, of course, yeah. <laughs> Back in 1972, John was one of the leading young riders in the country. But a major split in Irish cycling meant he wasn't allowed to compete on the international stage. As I always said, I wouldn't sell my soul uh, for 30 pieces of silver by changing over to... An association that I didn't believe in. I mean, I believe in a 32 count, yeah, and that's it, yeah. Back then, there were two internationally recognised Irish cycling organisations. One in the Republic of Ireland with riders from the 26 counties and one in Northern Ireland with riders from the six counties. You had to be a member of one of these cycling bodies to be able to officially qualify for the Olympic Games. But there was also a third Irish cycling body, known as the NCA, or National Cycling Association, and led by a group of prominent Republicans. This organisation represented the entire island of Ireland, all 32 counties. They believed in an all-Ireland organisation and were prepared to fight for it. 
The dispute was particularly bitter in the south between the 32-county NCA and the 26-county Irish Cycling Federation, the ICF. Each body had its own separate calendar of events, each running separate races, often on the same day. And although the riders didn't race against each other, the animosity was clear, as rival events were sometimes sabotaged. Many of the riders found themselves at the centre of a propaganda war that was as much about politics as it was about cycling. One of those competing for the 32-county NCA body was the great cyclist Shay O'Hanlon. Among them, Shay O'Hanlon of Dublin, the 31-year-old president of NCA and perhaps its most distinguished cyclist. And there was guys that I went out training with and had great respect for. But at the same time, we didn't have great respect for the organisation because it wasn't as good as our organisation. Our job was to make the NCA stronger and seem stronger than the other side. The NCA was the Republican-leaning body that wanted a 32-county cycling organisation. But since 1947, the association and its riders had been barred from international competition, leading to years of acrimony and agitation between the rival administrations. There were protests at the 1955 World Championships and the 1956 Olympic Games by NCA riders. Supporters of the NCA were even believed to be behind the blowing up of a track in Dublin before a rival event in 1959. By 1972, they were prepared to take action again, with a secret plan to protest at the Olympic Games in Munich, hatched by Joe Crystal, a Dublin barrister and prominent Republican. That was organised by Joe Crystal, yeah. And uh, it was put together probably the, the last couple of days of the Ross in 72, yeah. That uh, he gave us the details uh, uh, where we'd be going. The secret plan was to drive a team of riders and support staff across Europe in time for the Olympics in Munich and then gate-crash the Olympic cycling road race itself. Only those involved knew of the plan and leading NCA figures like Shea O'Hanlon were kept in the dark. There was a race in Bellewstown, that's one Sunday. I was there and uh, somebody told me that there was a crowd gone off to Munich to do a protest at the Olympics and um, that was the first I heard about it, you know. So they went off very quietly with no fanfare. Well, obviously they'd have to, you know. Kieran McQuaid's father, Jim McQuaid, had managed the official Irish cycling team at the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico. Hello, David. Hi, Kieran. How you doing? If you come in the door, I'll buzz you in. If you come in the door, go to the lift, come up to the second floor, and I'll meet you at the top of the stairs, OK? Great stuff. Uh, on the lift, OK? Thanks. Cheers. Kieran rode for the 26-county ICF organisation, and he was determined to get selected for Munich in 1972. The stories that I heard about that trip from my father, just th I just thought this the Olympics is the be-all and end-all. So worked until Christmas and studied until Christmas, got the, passed the exam and then headed into 72 with one major ambition, and that was to get the Olympics. So when I was picked, it was a huge thing. Two weeks before the Olympic Games, Kieran McQuaid rode in the 1972 Tour of Ireland, an event 
that again highlighted the animosity between the rival factions. 85 such riders from six countries set off from the GPO in Dublin to ride 750 torturous miles in the Rally Dunlop Tour of Ireland. McQuaid was riding alongside his teammates from the official Irish Olympic team, Liam Horner, Peter Doyle and Noel Taggart. And on the first day from Dublin to Athlone, uh, there was a breakaway of about 16 riders. I was in it. And the race for that yellow jersey was on. It was early August on a very hot day. And I remember we, we were well established. We were a minute or two up the road and everybody doing their pacemaking. And I remember looking up the road and seeing a bit of a sheen on the road, like sometimes you would see on a sunny day what looked like a mirage of a, a shine. But when we got there, as it turned out, it wasn't just a shine of a mirage type shine. It was a shine of little gold tacks on the road that had been put there. The Republican-led NCA had a long history of sabotage in their struggle with the internationally recognised 26-county ICF and the equivalent body in the north. Now, they weren't put there by some local farmer. They were put there by supporters of the NCA or NCA people. It cost me because on that day, as we went across these tacks, I heard people puncturing, and I, I got across through the tacks, and I hadn't punctured. And I was breathed a big sigh of relief, and then pss, twice, both of my wheels punctured, went down. Their, their protest cost me that day. It was a major setback for McQuaid and the official Irish Olympic team, and it wasn't the last act of treachery they faced that week. Towards the end of that race, uh, on the last day into Dublin, we came in over the Wicklow Mountains and over the Sally Gap, and on one of the descents, all of a sudden, we saw marshals on the road all telling us, slow down, slow down, slow down, that there was oil spread all over the road on the descent. And it was a wet day, so it was shocking danger. So these, these were their ways of, of making their, their, their case known. And then, of course, what happened in Munich after that, that was a few weeks later. Despite the disruption, McQuaid ended the week on the winning team, with Horner topping the field. A fortnight later, McQuaid and the official Irish Olympic cycling team set off for West Germany. Riders were selected from the two internationally recognised bodies on the island. The team was made up of three riders from the official body in the south, Kieran McQuaid, Peter Doyle and Liam Horner, and one from the body in the north, Noel Teggart. Another athlete travelling from Northern Ireland was Belfast Mary Peters, who was competing in the pentathlon. Born in Liverpool, she was set to represent Britain in Munich at a time of heightened political tension in the north. It was the worst year of the Troubles. There'd been over 500 people died that year in, in terrorist attacks. I didn't have a track to train on because the one I used was owned by the university. It was full of potholes. The difficulty of training during the Troubles was compounded for the lack of facilities. It wasn't easy. I didn't have a car. I used to get two buses, one into the city centre and then another one out to the training track. I, I just did it, even though bombs sometimes were going off as you were travelling on the bus and I would be carrying my eight, four kilo shot and my starting blocks. And, you know, you just did it. it you had no alternative. And uh, I just wanted to win so much. The Games of the 20th Olympiad opened on the 26th of August, 1972. 
the pentathlon was made up of five events. On the 3rd of September 1972, Mary Peters took to the line in the final event of the pentathlon, the 200 metres, and the whole competition rested on this sprint finale. So the girl on the inside, Bodna Pollack, Mary Peters, Angelova, Tikimarova, Rosendahl. Rosendahl will set them off surely. The roar for Rosendahl. But Peters staying well at the moment. Peters making her way up. Making her way up on Angelova. Now come on, Mary, you need the run of your lifetime. Keep on going. Rosendahl on the outside. Pollock is going well, but she's only a yard clear. Mary, come on. Come on. You've got two yards to make. Mary Peters just pipped local favourite West Germany's Heidi Rosendahl. And in doing so, won gold the only athletics gold that Britain would win at the 1972 Olympic Games. The following day, the British Olympic Association had a reception to, uh, to congratulate me. And while I was there, they said that... I said to my coach, there's something not quite right here. What's going on? And he said, nothing that you need to know about. And it was that somebody had phoned the BBC to say that if I went home to Belfast, I'd be shot and my flat would be bombed. And I said, well, I'm going home anyway. Meanwhile, with the Olympic cycling road race set for the 6th of September, the NCA's secret team assembled in Ostend in Belgium for the journey to Munich. Pat Healy from Calorglan in County Kerry was one of the riders. He made the trip from Belgium with fellow NCA rider John Mangan in a car driven by the 32-county organisation's man in West Germany, Eddie Rafter. Eddie picked us up in, in a, he had one of those big Ford Zodiacs of the time. It was a very big car. And then the Joe McAloon had one, which was a fashionable car, then Opel Manta at the time. So he came in his car to Ostend and... Uh, between the two cars, there was plenty of room to get us all down there. Well, a bit overcrowded, all right. I suppose we were three, two days on the road, I suppose, to get there uh, about. And we didn't make it in one day anyway, for sure. Seven cyclists and three support staff that were intent on gate-crashing the Olympic cycling road race to highlight their cause, to allow their riders compete on the international stage again. We arrived the day before the Olympics, Amongst them was John Mangan. And we stayed in a house that Eddie Rafter had organised and um, I'll never forget where we were staying. It was 49, Impelstrasse was the name of the place, yeah. Because when we went out to do the protest, nobody brought the address on them, yeah. So they, they could never trace where we were staying, yeah, but I had it in my mind, yeah. 49, Impelstrasse. Packed in their bags was a set of white jerseys with green and orange hoops. This would be the unofficial Irish team kit. The night before the race, the NCA team of protesters went through the plan again. They were to make a peaceful protest and ride the Olympic cycling road race for as long as possible. The plan was to send four riders to the start line and covertly start the race, even though they had no race numbers. Another three were to wait in some trees up the road and joined the race as it passed. At 49 Implastressa, each rider was briefed on their role. In the house, the group had no television and little or no contact with anyone else as they prepared to gatecrash the biggest sporting event on the planet. It was the 5th of September, 1972, the eve of the Olympic cycling road race. The plan was in place and nothing could stop them now. 
This is an ITN news flash from the Olympic Village in Munich, where early this morning, armed Palestinian guerrillas raided the sleeping quarters of the Israeli team. As the protesters slept, a group of Palestinian gunmen called Black September had taken members of the Israeli Olympic team hostage and were demanding the release of hundreds of prisoners. The Black September group pushed their political demands in front of perhaps the biggest audience in history. There was worldwide shock as the siege unfolded live on television over 24 dramatic hours. Their credibility with that audience was another matter. After an earlier report that the Israeli athletes had been rescued, it was announced that they had died along with five of the guerrillas. Horrific eyewitness accounts began to emerge from the Olympic Village. At about 4.30 uh, this morning, I heard I was uh, fast asleep when I woke up and heard uh, our um, international uh, wrestling referee, Joseph Gottfreund, uh, shouting, boys, uh, run out, run away. Uh, I saw a very strange uh, picture. I saw Joseph Gottfreund holding the door and trying to keep it shut and some people from the outside pushing it open. Uh, it was about half open, he's a very hefty fellow, and he held them and kept shouting to us to, to escape. Henny Kuiper is a former cyclist who was representing the Netherlands at the 1972 Olympics. We wake up the day of the accident. His accommodation was not far from where the Black September siege was taking place. And we went to the breakfast room. Did you hear that? What's going on then? Yeah, they were they were shooting tonight and uh, I, I was a good sleeper I, I, I heard nothing but then we went outside and then we saw not so far from our apartment the the, the Palestinians with the guns and uh, the mosque and everything having already received a death threat herself Mary Peters was swiftly brought to the airport under armed guard I think there were 11 uh, people had died so it was arranged that I would go home early. I'm not sure what the thinking was in the sense that I'd been threatened to, but I was happy to, to go home. Like most of the athletes in Munich, Mary Peters was unaware of the scale of the tragedy at the time. I knew one of the hurdlers whose coaches had been uh, killed. We didn't have any uh, information because it was all in German. We didn't know what was happening. And, of course, we hadn't, we hadn't realised the severity. We knew that the camp was surrounded by army tanks. Two Israeli athletes were killed during the day-long siege at the Olympic Village. And there was criticism of the German police's handling of the crisis. Nine more died during a botched rescue attempt by the German police at a nearby airport. Five of the Palestinian gunmen were also killed, along with a German police officer in the final gun battle. This was the first time Germany had hosted the Olympic Games since Berlin in 1936, during Adolf Hitler's reign. Hitler had used the 1936 Games to promote Nazi ideology of racial supremacy and anti-Semitism. The 1972 Games in Munich were supposed to be Germany's redemption as Olympic hosts but a lack of security would cost them dearly. Mary Peters asked her pentathlon rival, the German Heidi Rosendahl, about the tragedy. But I said to Heidi, you know, why did it happen? And she said, because um, Munich is in Bavaria, 
It's part of Germany, but they wanted to make it a happy games after the sadness of the Berlin games. And she said that they hadn't thought out the security and therefore it was easy to get into the village. Kieran McQuaid and the official Irish Olympic cycling team were also in the dark about the extent of the atrocity and whether the games would continue. And the day before we were supposed to race the Black September incident happened. And we went to bed that night not knowing whether the Olympics were postponed for a week, cancelled, there was all sorts of rumours going around the village. Nobody knew. We even got up the following morning, the day that we were due to ride the Olympic road race, and went down to the canteen to get our food for breakfast and in our in our tracksuits and and still there was still not nobody was 100 percent sure. The rumours were going around still. But we we were told that, that morning that Everything was put back a day. Back at 49 Implastrasse, John Mangan and the group of 32 county Irish cycling protesters woke. Unaware of the events of the night before, they headed off to a now deserted Olympic cycling circuit to disrupt a race that was clearly now not going ahead. The following morning, we'd have breakfast, or maybe uh, more so like a dinner and breakfast because of the race. We went out to the race and um, uh, we. Uh, uh, we were waiting probably two hours and uh, we realised, shit, are we in the wrong place? And then somebody met one of the locals and they said, is the race not on? And they said, did he not hear? There was 13 Israelis shot dead yesterday by the Palestinians and everything is cancelled for a day. Despite the atrocity, the Olympic Games resumed after just one day of mourning. With the cycling road race rescheduled for the 7th of September, the rogue Irish team from the 32-county NCA regrouped and a decision was taken to proceed with the protest. The race was set for 11am. The audacious plan to interrupt the Olympic Games and make international headlines for their cause of Irish unity was about to unfold. Four of the team, Pat Healy, Brian Holmes, T.P. Riley, and Gabriel Howard headed to the start line with their bikes and cycling gear. For all the world looking like official competitors, only, of course, they weren't. A further three riders, John Mangan, Batty Flynn and Brian Davey, were waiting in some woods up the road since 7am, ready to join the race as it passed. Three more were at the course to act as support staff. Benny Donnelly, Joe McAloon and David McLaren. With everyone now in place, they watched and waited. Henny Kuiper was representing the Netherlands in the 1972 Olympic cycling road race that was about to begin. We went to the start and then went to the boxes where you can change your clothing and prepare for the race, put some uh, oil on the legs and you have your water bottle on your bike and you have your food in your bag. And then it wasn't something uh, special. As Henny Kuiper waited for the start, alongside the other official competitors, Pat Healy and the other NCA cyclists were warming up in their white jerseys, trying desperately to blend in. There were some riders with a bike sitting on the street. They were wearing white and green. Brian Holmes, T.P. Riley and Gabriel Howard of the protesters were halted at the start line by race officials. As they were led away, they tried to hand out leaflets in English, French and German about the protest. Two of them also unfurled a banner that read 
British Army occupies our sporting fields. All the camps of what the different teams were lined up along the road, so all the rides were warming up. But Pat Healy managed to avoid detection and watched the clock ticking down to the start of the race. I was keeping an eye on the countdown clock and uh, was just cruising up and down the road. And Pat's job was to try and get started in the Olympic race, despite not having qualified and having no race number on his back. Everybody was busy preparing, so nobody really bothered me much. And um, then as the lineup was happening, I was still warming up and they were shouting guys to get into the line and get ready. I rode the bike up the road towards where they were lining up as the clock was coming right down to the to zero and uh, I immediately just turned the bike back into the front of the group. So I got started right at, at the front of the group. If I was going to do something, it was the perfect time. I got a perfect start to the race. Once the race got underway, Kieran McQuaid of the official Irish team was safely amongst the bunch, cycling at high speed, unaware of the 32-county NCA protesters. We went out and we knew nothing of any, anything going on at the start, and there was something going on at the start. Apparently there was four riders trying to get into the actual event and, and had their protest at the start, but German police copped that they didn't have race numbers and politely took them away. Maybe not so politely, but anyway, they were taken away. Meanwhile, the other three riders, including John Mangan, were waiting in the woods ready to join in. We went off the road a couple of miles, maybe two and a half miles, and there was woods. So we waited just to maybe 10 or 20 metres off the side of the road, like on the motorbikes went toward the lead cars, whatever it was. Then the cyclists came along as well. We, we filtered into the middle of it, and that was it, yeah. Racing for the official Irish Olympic team, and in a race he dreamed about, Kieran McQuaid couldn't believe his eyes. I remember at one stage, as we climbed up a hill, it was a, a, lap, a circuit race for so many laps. I remember on the hill at one lap, I saw what looked like three bike riders getting out of a hedge on the hill and jumping into the race. And the first time, thing I thought was, there must be local bike riders. I just don't even think about it. Don't, don't worry about it. Somebody else has sorted out. John Mangan was quietly watching and waiting from the edge of the woods as the race came his way. And he was about to make history. I joined the Olympics maybe uh, four or five miles up the road with, uh, uh, with a few fellas, Betty Flynn and those, yeah. And then uh, I attacked and I, uh, I led the Olympics for a, a good few miles. And the only fellow who was able to stay with me uh, was a Russian. There was a bit of uh, confusion when a fellow leading the Olympics had no number and he shouldn't be in the Olympics. Alarm bells were now ringing for Kieran McQuaid. But then a couple of, maybe a mile or two up the road, I ended up behind one of them and I noticed he was wearing a white jersey with a green and gold band. And I looked at his bike and it was the same bike as I was riding and I knew who the guy was. And I thought, oh my God, we've got three NCA riders in the bunch. Pat Healy, one of the rogue NCA riders, was enjoying the experience competing against the best amateurs in the world. I was still in the race when the, when the lads came into it, but um, we never met in the bunch, as it turned out, and uh, I wasn't pulled out by the officials or anything. But his Olympic experience was about to come to an abrupt end. I was involved in, in a, a crash. It was a standard crash, and the race was gone by the time we got up. There was, I suppose, eight or ten people of different countries. But John Mangan was still in the action, 
and he wanted to prove what the rogue 32-county NCA riders could do on the international stage. I mean, the way I looked at it was, we were as good as any, any of them, yeah. And I mean, I'm certain uh, that day I was in a good day that I wouldn't say I, w- I would win it, but I certainly would be in the first six in here. Mangan was forced back into the safety of the bunch by race marshals on motorbike. It was here that he encountered Noel Teggart from Banbridge, the lone rider from the Northern Irish body who was cycling and competing for the official Irish Olympic team. Noel Teggart was in the best form of his career at the time and had ambitions to win a medal. However, things quickly became heated between the two. There was some little a bit of hassle with someone of the, the Irish cyclists. Like uh, one of them said to me, there's a lot of southern bastards around this morning. And I, I took offence to that, right, yeah. John Mangan claims those were the words of Noel Teckert, something that is dismissed by Kieran McQuaid. Not, not a chance. Not a chance. Sorry, I'm going to have to, have to disagree with John Mangan on that one. There's no chance. You can, you can make excuses for all he wants, but there's no chance that no, Noel Taggart was riding the last international race of his life. Regardless of what was said, McQuaid saw the situation quickly escalating. On the hill the next lap, as we came near the top of it, I was on the right-hand side of the bunch, the peloton, and I saw just in front of me Taggart being pushed from behind into the crowd and held. And we're travelling at, you know, 25 miles an hour, and all of a sudden I was past the, t- the two of them. And the first thought was, do I stop and go back and help him? Kieran McQuaid was faced with a dilemma. Stop and help his teammate who'd been dragged out of the race by a rogue rider or keep himself in the race. Noel Taggart was a truck driver. I was only a 21-year-old student. He was well able to handle himself. And this was the Olympic road race. And I said, no, you know, there's no point in going back because he's well able to handle himself. So I just kept going. And I didn't see him again until after we finished. And he was, needless to say, he was in not in good shape. He was disconsolate, he couldn't, he, he, was, he was heartbroken. John Mangan maintains the row that ended Noel Teggart's race wasn't planned. After the race, uh, 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 I watched some of the papers, uh, they must have interviewed McQuaid and that, yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't believe too much what McQuaid would say. I mean, he said uh, that, uh, that he saw me being aggressive with, uh, with uh, the riders and all that sort of thing. That's was bullshitting, yeah. So, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't take... Uh, all McQuaid wanted was publicity for his uh, statements, yeah. He, he was there with the object of making a protest. You know, people had got these riders and they've said, this is the way, we, this is what we've got to do. I mean, some of them afterwards claimed they were there to ride the bike race. They had protest leaflets in their back pockets about British occupation in Northern Ireland. If I'm riding a 100-mile bike race, I know what I want in my back pocket. I want some food, some sustenance, not protests about British occupation in Northern Ireland. John Mangan has a different view of things. They gave out leaflets at the start while they were uh, while they were uh, doing their protests. Yeah, I think it was in three languages: English, uh, French, and German. I had no leaflets, so we had no leaflets because we were out the road joining the race. I mean, uh, uh, my job was to uh, to prove to fellas that I was as good as the best of them. Yeah, and they had no interest in, in uh, down below. Yeah. Arme zwaaien over de streep. Henny Kuiper, Nederland. As Dutch cyclist Henny Kuiper went on to win gold, the official Irish cycling team had seen their Olympic hopes disrupted. Liam Horner finished in 38th position, 
Kieran McQuaid in 40th place and Peter Doyle in 69th position. The disconsolate Noel Teggart was unable even to finish the race. Afterwards, the riders from both sides of the Irish cycling divide tried to pick up the pieces. RTE's Noel Andrews talked to a spokesman from the rogue team about the protest that had disrupted the Olympics. We were protesting against uh, Britain's interference in Irish affairs to the extent that the NCA is not internationally recognised. This is not the first protest. This is our third international protest. We had one at uh, Melbourne Olympics and one at the World Championships in Rome. Did it cost you a lot of money to organise this? Um, it costs us a lot of our own money to come here. But uh, our feelings are such that we think any money that we spend is well worth the effort. And how many of you all together came? Uh, we had seven cyclists. You had more than just seven cyclists. You had a lot more support too. Uh, well, we had some uh, supporters in this country and we had also uh, myself and two other sort of deputy managers. Well, now, there's word of accusation that you interfered with one of the riders from ICF. Well, as I have not spoken yet to the riders uh, who are being accused, I can't uh, deny or confirm that. But I can say that the riders that were on the line were instructed, and indeed all the riders were thoroughly briefed to make as peaceful a protest as possible. Later on, a deflated Kieran McQuaid from the official Irish Olympic team spoke to RTE about the dramatic race. And the incident, did this upset you? Rather not comment at the moment, manager. I won't allow his comment. Sorry. No comment at all. Did you know what no was going to happen? At all. We didn't know anything about it, no. Did you not see any of these lads around beforehand? No, we didn't. It came as a complete we surprise. We couldn't comment, really. Complete surprise to us. We couldn't comment. Despite the heightened security in Munich after the Black September massacre, one of the 32 county NCA riders, Pat Healy, who took part in the cycling protest, recalls the West German police being relaxed about the situation. The authorities were seemed to be very understanding. They were able to make the distinction. They knew it was something much, much smaller. Otherwise, the reaction would have been more heavy-handed. I suppose they could see clearly we were in cycling, so we couldn't be armed anyway, so they knew they didn't have a, a, an armed situation to deal with. That there was just shots and, shots and racing jersey was, the, was all they had to deal with. But never dawned us that we could be shot or anything like that, that we'd be mistaken for... Terrorists or whatever. John Mangan was arrested but released without charge later that evening. The story was front page news in every paper in Ireland and made international headlines. Meanwhile, Mary Peters attended a homecoming reception in Belfast in spite of the death threats she had received. The homecoming was memorable as trouble-torn Ulster united to give her a hero's welcome shared with her coach, the late Buster McShane. Born near Liverpool, Mary Peters was the golden girl of her adopted home. I went for gold, I won gold, and I've brought it back for you. When the Irish cyclists returned home, both the official team and the rogue 32-county NCA team, it was a different sort of homecoming. Diplomatically, the NCA protest had caused international embarrassment. Then Taoiseach Jack Lynch stepped in, giving the protesting riders a public rebuke and summoning the protest orchestrator, Joe Crystal, to government buildings. It's a story that fellow NCA member John Mangan remembers well. It's not really known, is uh, Jack Lynch. Uh, he called in Joe into the office, uh, 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 the Taoiseach's office, 
Um, and he said, any more, any more protests uh, like Munich, uh, uh, that he would, would withdraw all passports and Joe told him where to get off. And that was the end of that. One of the NCA cyclists, Brian Holmes, was interned soon after returning to Belfast. The others went back racing as before. When the dust had settled, there was change afoot in Irish cycling. In November 1972, Shea O'Hanlon became president of the NCA, the organisation that had protested that day in Munich. Soon afterwards, O'Hanlon went for a training ride with Kieran McQuaid, one of the cyclists who the NCA had tried to upstage at the Olympics. It was the beginning of the end of the split in Irish cycling that had lasted for decades, in time for a golden era that would see the likes of Sean Kelly, Stephen Roach, Martin Early and Paul Kimmage reached the top of the sport in the 1980s, racing under the banner of a unified All-Ireland body. That's just who is that rider coming up behind because that looks like Roach. That looks like Stephen Roach. John Mangan believes the Munich protest was the catalyst. If we didn't do that, it would be still split. Well, it might be split now, but it would be split for another top years, yeah. And at least our protest, I mean, uh, 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 got the... Got the three associations talking together and going together. And Pat Healy agrees. <laughs> it was a shock therapy, yeah. I said it had a big bearing on getting people talking, you know, there were... I think we did the right thing to... to, to 67-year-old, 80-year-old me now wouldn't do it, like, but... <laughs> at 21, it's a year... different times. Former NCA president Shea O'Hanlon believes change was coming anyway. I, I have great respect for the guys that did this. But at the same time, it didn't play. It had to be played down afterwards. Despite what happened in Munich, Noel Tegart was a driving force behind the Northern clubs joining the new power-sharing cycling body. Pat Healy won the first ever national championships held between the three associations under an All Ireland banner in 1979. John Mangan, meanwhile, raced as an amateur in France with great success until the mid-1980s. To this day, John Mangan believes the protesters did the right thing that day in Munich. The cyclists, their, their only interest was uh, racing. We'd get the like of McQueen that to twist things and say that we were the opposite. Like, but The only good thing he ever did was, it was one of the stages of the Ross Talton back in Dingle that uh, uh, he came to me and he asked me would I talk to Noel uh, Taggart. I said, I would, of course. I said, I have nothing against the man. Like, and uh, we went down to, together and, and shook hands. And uh, as I said like to him, there was no good in talking uh, about the past, who was right and who was wrong, because he had his view, I had my view. So, I mean, we talked about the future. Yeah. He was a nice man, yeah. We made our peace, yeah. And I think the poor man died, was it? A year or two years later, cancer, yeah. It would have been better if it ended another way. Uh, ended up that he could have finished his race, I could have finished my race, yeah, and then you never know, we might have ended up at the line together chatting. But at least we got together to talk back in Dingleon. Kieran McQuaid is happy it happened. I spoke to Noel afterwards and I said, I believe you two shook hands. He said, we did. And I said, and what words were spoken? He said, he said to me, I suppose it shouldn't have happened. And as far as I'm concerned, that's as near to an apology as, as Noel was liable to get. And I'm very happy that it happened. And now, 
Five decades later, there is a new generation of Irish cyclists riding high in the sport. Among them, an exciting young professional racing in France. Last year, he rode the Olympic test event in Tokyo and he's determined to push on for a place on the Irish team. Having heard most of this story, this family name might be familiar to you now. Put your hands together for Matthew Taggart! His name is Taggart, Matthew Taggart. I'm uh, Matthew Taggart, I'm 24, I'm an Irish international road cyclist. And he's the grandson of Noel Taggart, the Northern Irish rider who competed for the official Irish team and whose Olympics was brought to an end by the NCA's protest in Munich in 1972. Matthew was just a baby when Noel Taggart passed away, but he knows all about his grandfather's legacy. It's mainly about my grandfather, and it was really him who was the turning point and the whole divide north-south because of what happened to him at the Olympics. So now anyone cycling in Ireland, north or south, is you ride for Ireland. Matthew has already represented Ireland at elite international level. But just like his grandfather, Matthew would dearly love to ride in the Olympic Games. The 2020 Olympics was postponed due to the coronavirus outbreak. Like I should have been in France, racing all over the world all year. So really we've had to take a big back seat. But Matthew has been back in Banbridge County Down, training hard with an eye on the rescheduled games in 2021. For Matthew's dad, Neil, also an international rider, it would be a dream come true and a piece of family history. For any sports person, the Olympics is probably the ultimate dream. I know in cycling there's a Tour de France and all, but for any sports person to compete in the Olympics is the ultimate dream. And even round the town and even round the whole of the country, you know, like no matter where I would go yet, they would say to me, you know, you know, old Taggart's son, you know, who went to the Olympics and all the rest. So it's a, such a big thing for anyone. Would have been my dream growing up to go to the Olympics. And if, if Matthew could have a go at it, then that'd be all the more special, really, for him and for us and for the whole family, really. The coronavirus may have halted him in 2020, but Matthew Taggart is determined to complete the race started by his grandfather, Noel, nearly 50 years ago. That would be extremely special. Obviously, even without the legacy, I think the Olympics is every sportsman's dream. Uh, that would make it even more special that it's in the family, if you know what I mean. That would be a dream come true. So the dream's not over, it's just postponed. <laughs> Today's documentary and one, Green and Gold, was narrated by David Coughlin. It was produced by David Coughlin and Donal O'Hurley.